Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Puatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Puatic, one of your hosts, and the other one is Aaron Cameron. Today, we are revisiting a new format that we introduced to the show just recently. The Vancouver Real Estate Forum just took place in digital format. And we're going to cover the top five highlights from that conference. Joining us again, just as we did in the last one, is Peter Altabelli. He's the VP and GM of Yardi. Welcome back, Peter. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Aaron. Glad to be back. And for anybody that missed it, I was referencing the first time we did a top five. It was for the Canadian Department Investment Conference, which also happened just recently. And we had Peter on that show to cover the top five there. If you've got any interest in the Canadian Department market, we'll put the link in the show notes to that. But to jump into it, we are going to do a top five countdown. And I'm going to invite Aaron now to tell us about number five. Yeah, drum roll, please. Number five, Vancouver continues to be a strong market for investment amid softening activities, particularly for multi-res. So, you know, I don't think anybody's surprised by that. I mean, you could probably throw industrial in there too. And that's likely not a Vancouver-centric phenomenon. But given it's for the Vancouver real estate form, we'll stick to the Vancouver concepts. The multi-res space, while I think investment is softening a little bit, there's still strong fundamentals in that space. I mean, we can bat around the implications of the long-term implications of the immigration challenges, the long-term implications of foreign students coming to the Vancouver market in particular. But for now, anyway, let's date stamp it October 8th, I think, 2020. So seven-ish months into the, the pandemic. Uh, and yet the fundamentals for multi-res still remain sound. And I don't think that's surprising to anybody. So Peter, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, Aaron, I think, I think you're right. So this year, I think it's been, uh, you know, relatively, it's one of those years that's it's, it's up and down where, you know, the first quarter of the year is very, very strong for multi-res. And all of a sudden we start to see the softening and immigration stopping, foreign students stopping. What does that mean? You know, when we're at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference, they talked about a large percent of the immigrants were already here by March. So this year won't be as bad as say as following years. And what does it mean when you look at Vancouver, that's got a high immigration, it attracts a lot of new Canadians, a lot of immigrants. And what does that mean moving forward with the housing stock in 2021? versus what we're looking at today. I think if you look at things today, you've got some capping of rents because of the pandemic. And when that's being capped, and then you've got people on some sort of rent subsidy by the government, and that's coming to an end, what does that look like in the, going forward in the next couple of quarters for everyone in this housing stock or who's managing multifamily? So I think there's going to be some challenges coming up. And I think if we look back six months, I don't know by looking back six months and whether or not the future six months are going to be reflective of each other and reflective of the same. And I think that there's going to be a lot to think about and a lot of maneuvering by a lot of the owners of multifamily moving forward into 2021. Yeah, you know, we have this conversation at First National regularly where Adam and I in particular, even probably on an after show of a podcast at some point, where, you know, when vacancy rates across the country, particularly in Vancouver, are, you know, 0.3%, and now they're going to soften, quote unquote, back to 3% or 4%, like that's not necessarily unhealthy for the marketplace, right? You know, rents were increasing in certain instances, depending on your comparison, 10, 15% year over year, right? That's unhealthy growth. So I think we have to take it into perspective. So, right, the investments are softening, the market is softening, vacancies stabilizing to probably what's more of a healthy level, and rents aren't appreciating at astronomical paces. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in the long run. Now, 
to your point, if it's another six months, okay, let's see how it happens. If it's another 12 months of the pandemic, 18 months, I mean, that's the challenge. And I think right now everybody's just trying to kind of stay optimistic that if the fundamentals are strong we're, and you know the market remains at least somewhat buoyant, then hopefully we can get through this, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I think 3 to 4% on uh, vacancy rates are healthy markets. If you look at south of the border to the U.S., Three to five percent vacancy rates are not uncommon in most markets. In the Canadian experience, especially Vancouver, Toronto, we're so used to having sub two, sub one percent vacancy for such a long period of time that all of a sudden, when you start to see a three, four percent vacancy rate, it all you know the black cloud is above us, and how are we going to get get rid of that black cloud? As opposed to looking at it and saying, you know what, it's the new norm. Let's be more competitive. Let's be more inventive. Let's go out and fill our buildings. And I'm sure. Many of the owners and managers are, but they got to remove that black cloud and saying, new norm, three, two, three, four percent vacancy. Let's just be competitive and, and make it happen. And I think it's just an adjustment period of time that people will have to go through to adjust their operations, to look at their cost structures, to ensure the fact that their companies are running efficiently, effectively, that they're able to adjust the market and get out there to attract their applicants and make them tenants and make sure that their turnover rates are lower. Right, making sure that their residents are happy and staying with them for longer periods of time, which will then become a stable asset, even if you're running three or four percent vacancy, right? And you're going to be able to maintain those properties. And I think it, there's new challenges, and I think there's that type of vacancy rate. There's absolutely new opportunities with this for all the thing for everyone. As well. The thing with apartments as well is, you know, they always have had a reputation for being stable in bad times. And it's been so good for so long that it's been pretty much an irrelevant part of the equation. But now they are proving out that they are do perform well during a rough patch. And so anytime it's fear of the market, you're going to see a flight to safety and apartments are absolutely that. I mean, industrial is obviously benefiting as well, but it doesn't have the same reputation for safety that apartments does. So even though, yes, the increased vacancy rate and you know rent freezes and some of the headwinds is saving, you can see why the investment activity would still be fairly robust, even though you know the underwriting for your valuations might not have been what it was back in December. Yeah, agreed. I still think that if you're in it for the long haul, investing in multifamily is still pretty stable and pretty safe. Yeah. People have to change their psyche. You just have to just adjust the way that you're thinking about it. it you know, yeah, agreed. We're so used, to, we're so used to 1% interest rates, right? 1% interest rates and a projected revenue growth of 15% per year. We're just That was unrealistic to be sustainable for any sort of long period of time anyway. So, okay, let's move on to number four. Number four is luxury retail market continues to perform well even throughout the pandemic in Vancouver. Now, this one I thought was really interesting. And I maybe let's categorize... The crisis, if you want to use that term, is really a service-oriented crisis, right? The pandemic is impacting those more on you know, the service side of the economy than they are other parts, right? So I guess it's not that surprising that the luxury retail market is maintaining or is still stable. Yeah, Aaron, I think when you look at retail, especially in Vancouver, right, where a lot of there's a lot of storefronts, especially in high luxury retail, high-end retail you got a lot of individual storefronts. And if I'm, I've maintained my job, I'm doing well, my company's doing fine, I'm not in the service sectors, I'm in a different sector of the economy that doesn't seem to be hit with the pandemic, and I can't fly anywhere, I can't go on holidays, my travel is completely restricted. At the end of the day, I'm going to have excess I'm going to have excess dollars and it's going to go along with my lifestyle. And to do that kind of shopping when you're going into high-end stores, I'm walking in a front door that's off a street typically, right? And that's controlled. I don't have to worry about all kinds of people sitting in a regional mall someplace. I'm walking into individual stores. 
the access is controlled. There's very few people there working. There's very few people in the store shopping. So I feel safer. I feel safer because I'm in that surrounding. And I think that individuals that have been able to maintain well-paying jobs and their companies are doing well will continue to spend the money, will find themselves even probably having more spending money because of the other restrictions put on them. And high-end retail will do fine. It's a safer place to go. The goods are there. The service, it's all about service. And I'm going to get the service that I'm looking for when I'm spending those kinds of dollars in those types of stores. Benjamin Tall is a real estate forum's webinar that that they ran partway through the pandemic, it's probably back in June, he actually identified exactly what you're saying, Peter, that job losses in the initial wave of the pandemic, something like 90% of them were in uh, low-paying service sector jobs, and which is also why the government subsidies work so well, because you replaced a $2,000 a month job with a $2,000 a month subsidy, you're going to keep paying your rent in your apartment, you're still going to keep being fine. I mean, the listeners of this podcast are in a sector that are doing pretty well. I mean, not that everybody's out buying Birkin bags and Breitling watches, but there is a certain amount of wealth that you see in this industry that's not been dented by what's going on right now. It is probably worth highlighting that number four being luxury retail market. If there is a way of, of audibly highlighting the word luxury, that would differentiate it because, of course, things like restaurants and a lot of you know closed malls are doing very poorly. But this is a unique, a unique silo within retail that's doing exceptionally well. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I think that and it will probably continue to do well for the next little while. But yeah. Okay, so luxury retail, number four, I think we've covered it. But yeah, that was a very interesting one out of the top five list that I thought. Number three, this was not as surprising as I'd say as number four, but number three, demand for industrial space remains strong, vacancy rate remains very low. I mean, it's not news, of course, that industrial has done well straight across the country and pre-pandemic Vancouver industrial was in short supply. Obviously, it's a, it's a major urban center that has the additional price accelerant of a, a geography that doesn't allow for constant expansion, as you see in markets like the greater Toronto area, where there's just uh, endless seas of, of industrial surrounding Toronto. So not shocking, continues to well. There's little new supply coming on. It's difficult to source sites. There's no reason to think that industrial will not continue to do very well into the foreseeable future. Have either of you come across, and I just, I heard this metric while I was watching the Vancouver Real Estate Forum, and I was unfamiliar, and maybe I just missed it, but they were talking about per cube and how tenants are now looking at industrial space, not on a per square foot basis, but on a per cube, I'm assuming it's a per cubed foot basis. Have you, have you come across that, that dynamic? No, I haven't, you know, I, I haven't come across it yet, and I haven't, we haven't really been talking with clients that have looked at it yet. But I've heard the terminology before. I've heard the terminology yeah. before versus square footage, but, you know, changing that metric. And maybe, you know, I don't know if it's a trend or if it's something that will be taken more serious as this time progresses moving forward. Well, the panelists were just mentioning that, you know, when you, you have to start considering the per cube dynamic in your rental rates because while you might be using the per square foot rental rates as comparison, if you've got a highly efficient infrastructure for that fulfillment center of whatever, and you've got, you know, 50 clear ceilings, you all of a sudden that 30 clear industrial complex is renting for 12 bucks per square foot versus that 50 clear industrial complex renting at 18 bucks per square foot. That 12 bucks versus 18 bucks per square foot rent, they're not the same because you've got an extra 20 feet of space above and it creates way more efficiency for the usage of that particular tenant. And then and the other thing that was I thought was really, really fascinating was just, well, you, you would think it's a landlord market because 
there's just a constraint on supply, the natural constraint on supply in Vancouver with just the, obviously the geography and the mountains and the ocean and the, the borders and all their, their green land. But yet it seems like the tenants are being very demanding, asking for extreme flexibility. And maybe it's just because if there are a certain echelon of tenants that are well situated to take advantage of this transition to e-commerce, that landlords are willing to give them basically whatever they want because you, you can get in a distribution to company that's well situated. That could be a tenant for 20, 30 years. So I'd rather give them whatever he wants now and, and lock down that cash flow on that asset. And it was just very curious that tenants are kind of throwing their weight around, even though you would think based on the dynamics that it's a landlord market. You know, I think you're right, but I think some of the tenant requirements are the kinds of industrial space I think that is coming to market and what the tenants want now is different. So, you know, one of the interesting stat was 80% of the product was delivered to the market in 2020. But the other interesting stat was that more and more tenants want more custom design build, right? They're not just walking into a building saying, yeah, let's lease it. They want a building in the way they want it fashioned because of a lot of the automation coming in. So, you know, the other thing that they talked about is what are some of the features that, the, that tenants are looking for? One of the big ones is automated racking systems. So I have an automated racking system that's fully computerized. I can see where the cube comes in, right? So I'm not looking at just the floor plate. I'm renting all that space above the floor plate. And if I'm a tenant that says I want, you know, really high ceilings and my requirement is a significant structure, there's a lot of real estate between the floor and the ceiling that I should be able to rent as opposed to just the floor plate because of the way they're using the space and these automated systems that are now coming in place and the robotics that are coming in place in these facilities, the value of that property, if you think about it, should be much higher, right? Because the value that the tenant's getting out of it is much greater as well. And, you know, I, I can just imagine going industrial from away from square footage into some sort of cubic measurement, the dramatic change to that will occur in the industry. If that becomes a new norm in, you know, 2021, 22, or even beyond. Particularly when you're starting to hear about you know 80 foot clear ceilings and things like that. I mean that's that Incredible. totally changes. That's like basically like two industrial warehouses stacked on top of each other or more. Well, uh, yeah, sorry, you know, one of the things that I thought I'll just add on because you had mentioned it. 80 percent of the supply that's come online was pre-leased in 2020, and it's the same number already for 2021. 80 percent of the industrial supply that's coming online in 2021 in the Greater Vancouver area is already spoken for. So there really isn't a lot of new supply coming, at least that, that's yeah. available if, if you're a tenant looking for new space. Right, which keeps the demand high and keeps the asset class healthy, right? Well, with all this demand too, let's, let's not forget that Vancouver was the first Canadian market to you know, dip its toe into the concept of second-story industrial you know, you see that in uh, apparently some markets in Europe and the States where they've got constrained land or very high land value for whatever reason. In Canada, we haven't seen it so much. Vancouver is the very first place where that concept came to life, that you would actually have a second story industrial building, which Aaron, you alluded to 80 foot clear. That could be two industrial buildings stacked on top of each other effectively. All right. On to number two. Tech growth continues to be strong. Vancouver is attracting major tech firms. And this is no secret, I guess. I know they were, I don't know if they were shortlisted, but they were certainly on the list for that Amazon contract, however long ago that was. I lose track of time. But then there was something in the news that I think Amazon is taking on an additional, uh, I think it was an entire building, something like 800,000 square feet of office space oh, for new Amazon. I can tell you actually the exact numbers, Aaron. Do you want them? This is, oh, yeah, this is incredible. Yeah. So this was December of last year. Amazon took, uh, I think it was a quadrille building, two of them side by side. It was a total of 1.1 million square feet. And that one transaction reduced vacancy in the city by 2%. Yeah, and that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that, that the power, the power of that, the largest enterprise in, in the world, I guess. But I know, Peter, they're not the only ones. There's lots of other uh, companies taking on more space in Vancouver. 
Yeah, I think Vancouver's done a great job at attracting high tech. You know, it's located on the West Coast. It's located north of San Francisco. It's not that far from Silicon Valley. And you West, you know, most of the really large tech firms sit on the West Coast in Silicon Valley and throughout that portion of California. Vancouver is very similar and it's close enough and it's same time zone. It's achievable by flights very, very quick. And so I think it lends itself well. And I think that Vancouver as an area did a great job selling that area to high tech firms and accommodating them when they chose the city and chose the area. And the builders and developers did a great job making sure that they had the office space, the industrial space historically to meet their needs and meet their requirements. I think technology is going to change over the next couple of years. I think this predicament we're seeing ourselves in with COVID is is going to be a quantum change in Canada, bringing in lots of new needs for different kinds of technologies, whether they be running industrial space or running your office and bringing better efficiencies to your office or internet, you know, bringing in the internet of things as it relates to how you run your business and the use of big data, which is also what was brought up in the real estate form, which is you know, combining IoT and big data and the use of that data. And where is all that data? It's out here someplace. And as companies, are we using big data effectively? And I think that was brought out in the tech sessions as well, which is we've all got it, but it seems to be all in different locations. And how can we all start to pull it together to make sense? And I think Canada is going to see that change occur where that's going to be required more and more in our real estate sectors. And so similar to the, the industrial and the pre-leasing, I remember from the, the Vancouver leasing conference, which took place last November, I believe, one of the panelists then was talking about there's all this new product being built in Vancouver, something like 4 million square feet, I believe, but 60% of it was already pre-leased. So the, the risk of an event that disrupted the industry was diminished. And now here we are, of course, with, with an event that has disrupted the industry and that, that will serve them well. But even so, again, similar to the apartment sector, very low rate, vacancy rate going in. So even if it does rise, you're still going to have a very healthy, robust, viable market. Yeah, I think so. I think this disruption as it relates to a lot of tech companies is, are, is going to spur a lot of growth. And I think Vancouver is poised well for that growth. And, you know, tech being one sector, but also the use of tech within other sectors that require real estate. So the tech in industrials is going to go through the roof. Tech in warehouse and logistics is going to be increased significantly because of COVID. And those industries that house a lot of big buildings, they're not suffering. They're growing like crazy because of this pandemic, right? If you take, you know, Amazon, you know, you don't even have to use Amazon as, as an example. Everyone just lives it every day, right? Their growth is enormous. I don't think that they realize what this could have done to their business. Who knew? And even when you're looking at the big couriers, they can't keep up with the deliveries and are trying to scale up and scale up to this. And all that requires technology, industrial space, and the office space to support it. So I think that there's a good news lining there as it relates to Vancouver and technology and, and the building that they're doing that's in place in that area. And I think they're going to continue to be very strong. Okay, I've got an audible. And this is real estate related, but it's also just Peter Altabelli related. So we talked about big data and the impact that that has on just tech and the way that, and they still companies, we now know big data is important and we know that we can benefit from it and there's got to be information we can get out of it. Fine. We all know that. We're all figuring that out. One of the things that is a challenge though, is that people are saying, but the data has got to be housed in Canada, in warehouses or in data storage in Canada. How is your company, how is you already dealing with that? Because I mean, you guys are a big data company in a lot of ways and the cloud is not necessarily jurisdictional. Do you have comments on just how you manage that, how you handle that? And do people just need to get their head out of the, get wrap their head around the fact that you just can't tell 
Microsoft or AWS keep my data in a jurisdiction? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's absolutely a challenge. But the reality is, is there's local laws. And what I mean by local laws, I don't mean local laws in the sense of where people live local laws. I mean, countries are local. U.S. is local. Canada is local. The U.K. is local. Europe is local. And you have to abide by those local laws. So, you know, Yardi is a cloud computing company. Yet in Canada, we support out of two data centers, one in Vancouver and one in Toronto. And that's a deliberate thing. So all Canadian data is held in Canada. So, yeah, you're in the cloud, but you don't realize that a Canadian company is hitting one of those data centers. They're never leaving this jurisdiction of this country. And why is it? Because you've got both federal and provincial privacy laws that we have to, as a company, ensure on behalf of our clients that those laws are not breached. And so the laws are not dynamic enough around the world. And if you go to Europe, they're even more restrictive. And Europe has a ton of different restrictions within inside their privacy laws for cloud computing companies that say, yeah, I'm in the cloud, but if I'm in Europe, the data centers are sitting in Europe. And we have, again, two different data centers throughout Europe to make sure that we're within the privacy and security laws of, the, of that jurisdiction or that locality. So it can be done. It can be done. But clients have to be aware where they're going and what they're doing when they're acquiring cloud services. Yeah. Well, and thanks for that, Peter. I just, I find it a very, very fascinating thing. First National, with the data that we collect, we use, you know, one of the cloud computing companies. Our challenge is we can't get comfort from Microsoft. They're not going to indemnify us for the chance that it might get moved. Like, what happens if one of your data centers go down? You got to move it somewhere else. If you don't have the capacity in Canada, does it move to the U.S. or is it just inaccessible? No, it moves within Canada. So we do have a full DR. So not only do we have a data center, but we have a full disaster recovery center sitting in Canada. And that's why we locate one in Toronto, one in Vancouver, because we need a geographical disbursement of those data centers as well. Because something geographically could happen in one area that caused a data center to go down, a data center goes under stress, that you have to bring up your clients in the others. So you have to have the right infrastructure. And I know for us and many of our asset classes, whether it be multifamily or senior housing, which houses people's data, and some of that is quite critical data on individuals, it cannot leave the country and it has to be maintained in jurisdictionally in Canada. And we've been able to do that for our clients. All of our clients are saying the data never, ever leaves this country and you have to plan for it. And, you know, we're in real estate, so we can do it. But if you're in the general cloud doing general applications, Facebook, where's the data in Facebook? Where's your data in Instagram? Where's your data in all these other social media sites, right? They could be anywhere. It could be anywhere that they put it based on their network capabilities and where they want that data stored and what country they want that data stored for their own benefit and for their own purpose. So you have to be aware as in a consumer and an individual and as a company where your data is set. And especially if you're leasing space, you say with Microsoft or Amazon or any of the other services out there, where are those data centers and where is that data being held? Because you are successful or you have to understand what local laws are. In the United States, there's a Patriot Act, and the Patriot Act breaks several different provincial privacy laws. And so if you're sitting in Canada and your data is in the States and it's personal data of individuals, not necessarily commercial corporate data, but personal data, you have an issue. And are you okay with the risk? And that's one of the big things you have to come up with. And we just dealt with it differently. We're putting our data in the country of its origin, and therefore we make sure we comply with privacy and security keep life simple for our clients. Peter's a good answer. And I like the side tangent of Aaron uh, grilling you on data security. (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate that. (laughs) Okay, so we've got the the number one highlight from the Vancouver Real Estate Forum. And I think in all honesty, if we'd done a top five for the last 10 years of the Vancouver Real Estate Forum, this would have been number one or 
top three at least every single one of those years. But here it is. Government policies continue to impact growth and development in the region. I mean, you speak to you know developers in you know virtually any jurisdiction across the country. They might have uh, you know mixed opinions on on progress at a governmental level. But in Vancouver, you do hear it much more pronounced. They've dealt with so many issues over the years with trying to temper managing a city while also growing. Peter, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think this would be number one anywhere in the country. I think the Vancouver Real Estate Forum and any other conference I've ever been to, I remember having the same conversation in Halifax probably four years ago, and it was the same thing, which was development, fees, silos, multiple fees, and no alignment in government operations, no alignment at the municipal level, and then no alignment between the different levels of government. So whether it be municipal, provincial, federal, if you're trying to get things done and trying to move things through the development process so you can start your projects, the complaint has always been too difficult, too much time, too many silos, too many different kinds of fees. Could we not streamline all of this? And why isn't there the will on the government side to streamline all of these things so we can get through the process easier, more effectively, and out into construction faster? And that was the number one thing in Vancouver, and I probably will be the number one thing moving forward, as well as at least everyone in that jurisdiction can be comforted by it's the same where everywhere in the country. You know, so. Yeah, I feel like we might have ruined the surprise for next year's top five list that this will likely be in the same spot. So hopefully all the listeners have forgotten by the time we get to this. It's something that is somewhat unique to Vancouver is the fiefdoms that exist, where every single local planning committee has a fair amount of control. And there is not a lot of cooperation. So that that is a common criticism I hear in that market. And even for developers trying to work through multiple jurisdictions, that it causes difficulties when the system's entirely different, when you're trying to build just 20 minutes down the road somewhere else. And so it also inhibits uh, some of the growth through the city and how to understand the way the systems work. We probably should focus on some of the positive. I mean, obviously, Vancouver's experienced a ton of growth over the last 20 years. And, you know, the the city has managed it. It's obviously blossomed into a world-class city. So let's not just you know, focus all on the negative, but constant delays does cause significant cost increases for developments in a market where cost is already the talking point for every development for people trying to live there. Yeah, I think, look at Vancouver, and I agree, it's a world-class city. It's beautiful. And the changes that have occurred in that city over the last 20 years are incredible. And what a place to visit, what a place to live, and what a place, to, I mean, between the mountains. And even if you look at, the, you know, when you're looking at the scenery and then you're looking at the core of the downtown, it's just, it's all beautiful to experience and to live in and, and to visit. I think their planning is, they've done an exceptional job. And it's probably one of the reasons why the real estate prices are where they are in Vancouver, because, you know, I don't know too many people that move there that want to move back, right? If there's a real draw for that area. And, and when you're drink, drawing people to that area, because it's a beautiful place to live, you're drawing businesses. Businesses are going to be there to support the people and people are there to support the businesses that reside in the area. And, and I think that the, the municipalities have done a great job effectively doing that kind of thing. Vancouver, BC didn't go through that same thing that Ontario did, say, 20 plus years ago, which is amalgamation of a lot of cities, right? So if you recall in Ontario, they took all these different cities and amalgamated them. Toronto grew, the greater Hamilton area grew, greater London area grew by amalgamating towns and cities around them. In Vancouver, you still have a lot of different municipalities with different governments. And to build in that structure where I'm in West Van versus Surrey, they're not far apart from each other, but there's different structures and different development around those structures. 
And for the builder, uh, there's got to be incredible amount of challenges in the sense of being able to deal with all these different smaller municipalities or the individual municipalities and what rules and fees and structures there are. But you know, you can't, and I think you're right, Adam, there's always positives. And although there's some negatives in terms of development, boy, when they get in the ground, they do a fantastic job. They do a fantastic job. You just have to go around and look at the area. And the developers, I think, should be congratulated on doing such a great job on building a beautiful area and a beautiful place to live. You know, I, I have a whole bunch of other negative things to say, but let's end it there because I think that's a really, really kind of not just polite, but it reflects the town of Vancouver. We're all spend lots of time there. We all love it there. So let's just end it there. And we can probably address some of the other challenges in the development world for another day. I'd like to thank First National for powering the podcast. Thanks to Yardi for sponsoring this particular episode. Thanks to Inform, of course, for setting this all up. And thank you, Peter, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Aaron, Adam, it's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.